Hello, and welcome to the Project Good Podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good Podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For April, we're focusing on animal welfare, and this is a special edition episode with Mercy for Animals. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing A.J. Albrecht, who is Managing Director for Mercy for Animals in the United States and Canada. She joined Mercy for Animals in 2019 as the organization's first U.S. Government Affairs team member, and she built and led the Government Affairs and Public Policy team for three years before stepping into her current role. As a licensed attorney, AJ was the past chair of the American Bar Association's Animal Law Committee, a past chair of the New Jersey State Bar Association's Animal Law Committee, and the founder of East Orange Animal Alliance. AJ's passion for animals goes beyond her work as she personally acts as a foster mom for a number of dogs. Let's get into the interview. Humans have caused a significant impact on animal species due to animal exploitation and abuse. In addition to ethical concerns, animal species have a significant impact on the environment and ecosystems. One of the areas that are affecting humans directly is how we interact with our farm animals. A.J. Albrecht previously was a legislative attorney with an organization dedicated to companion animal protection. She is a frequent speaker on animal advocacy issues and has published on topics relating to our food system, farm animals, and animal law. Welcome, AJ. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. It's great to be here. Hi. I'm so glad that you have uh, taken some time out of your busy schedule today to um, talk to us a little bit about Mercy for Animals. Um, but before we jump into the questions, I always like to get to know each of our guests in a little personal way of how they became who they are. So, um, you know, your career has uh, looked at uh, all different um, aspects of, um, you know, animal welfare. I guess what got you kind of uh, started in that direction in your life uh, with um, a focus on animals? Thanks so much. Yeah, I think when I'm asked this question, it's always uh, kind of an internal question of how far back to to look. Um, to be honest, I've shared my life with non-human animals for pretty much since the day I was born, um, but never really imagined that this could or would be a career. Uh, I think a lot of animal advocates might have grown up thinking they would be veterinarians or dog trainers or something like that. And that was never my path. Um, I went to law school and um, practiced family law for a number of years before realizing that uh, animal law was even an option for a career. Um, and it happened to me uh, in a pretty lucky way, um, as is the case for many practicing litigating attorneys. My position was uh, very grueling, and I was honestly quite depressed in the work I was doing. And the place that I felt uh, most whole was volunteering with animals at a local animal shelter 
And through that, I uh, met another attorney who told me about the American Bar Association's Animal Law Committee, which I joined and met so many other like-minded attorneys who were advocating for animals professionally. And from there, I was able to turn this into a career and really just feel so fortunate to have been able to do so. Um, as you noted, started out advocating for dogs and cats, specifically on breed-specific legislation for dogs, which is an issue very close to my heart as I share my home with dogs who are frequently discriminated against um, and called uh, pit bulls, although they're really mixed breed dogs, um, and then moved over to the farmed animal space where I am now, and of course what Mercy for Animals focuses on uh, back in 2019. So we are uh, advocating to end industrial animal agriculture, also known as factory farming, and feel very fortunate uh, to be dedicating my career to this mission. Wow. Um, yeah, that's uh, definitely um, different uh, than I, I thought that, you know, usually when you hear people when they have, uh, you know, a, a passion for animals or like, you know, since I was like, uh, you know, out of the womb. <laughs> 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 um, so um, and so that's interesting that um, you got to, uh, you know, develop this passion after, um, I guess I would say, uh, I guess the, the easy way I was described it is um, seeing into your own interaction of how, um, you know, animals, I guess, uh, helped you right. out, uh, move, move from one space to another. And, um, and then you saw that they have, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, um, not that animals didn't have a, a, a greater purpose, but, you know, you, you had a, a more personal interaction with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, growing up, we had companion animals in our home, ranging from a tarantula to rats to <laughs> my mom was always rescuing cats. We had numerous dogs, but I just always saw them as a part of our family and a part of life um, and just never really realized that aside from being a veterinarian, which I knew was was not for me, that there were any other jobs um, or career paths that would uh, allow me to interact with animals or advocate for them as it was. Yes, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I wanted to now kind of um, uh, jump in and um, I guess we should first for everyone introduce a little bit about uh, who and what is Mercy for Animals before we dive in a little bit deeper into um, the topic of uh, how things in, in the world is shaping around um, farm culture for animals and how it's affecting uh, all of us. But uh, I guess first tell me about the organization Mercy for Animals. Certainly. So Mercy for Animals' mission is to construct a just and sustainable food system. And we're doing that by working to end factory farming or industrial animal agriculture. And our vision is a world where animals are respected, protected, and free to pursue their own interests. So what that means is we're a global organization. Uh, in my role, I oversee our work in the United States and Canada, but we are active in Brazil, um, Mexico, expanding to Southeast Asia. We're already in India. Uh, working on this mission. And we have numerous interventions. We're working with corporations to get them to have higher animal welfare standards and offer more plant-based food options. 
We have a government affairs department that is working to change laws so that they're more beneficial towards farmed animals. Uh, we have a wonderful network of volunteers that our organizing department is consistently galvanizing to work on our campaigns. We also have our transformation project where we partner with factory farmers or former factory farmers who are just as exploited by this system as slaughterhouse workers, animals, consumers, and we partner with them to also bring about systemic change. Uh, so that's Mercy for Animals in a nutshell. As you can imagine, I could go on and on, and I'm looking forward to, to your other questions about our work. Um, yes. So, you know, one of the things that um, really appealed as I was doing my research on Mercy for Animals and just um, looking at this topic in general is that Mercy for Animals, as you mentioned, has a, a global reach. Um, and why I think that is important and is that um, you understand, uh, you know, one of the things I always uh, try to emphasize on, on this podcast is that uh, we are all globally connected. And so the one thing that makes us all, um, you know, uh, I guess you would say human or all level at the same uh, level is that we all have to eat. That's <laughs> the so number one thing. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, if you're rich or poor, well, you know, whatever culture you have, you have to eat. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is an, an extremely um, important topic because we are in, I guess you would say, a critical or in some cases, some people have called it the tipping point um, period mm -hmm. um, of, of life, of making the decision of about you know, how do we perceive, proceed in the future uh, with our uh, planet and society? And how do we, um, you know, what's our, our future mindset going to be about life and how we, um, uh, you know, move forward? And so one of the things, I guess, that because of the organization um, is a global organization, can you kind of explain, um, I guess, the... Uh, the the problems that are maybe not known to the average uh, person that are that farmers are facing. A lot of people, I think, yeah, they don't know that farmers are facing problems. They just realize this food shows up on my plate somehow. Certainly. So corporate consolidation in the industrial animal agriculture industry is really pervasive. Um, in the U.S., there are really only four, arguably five corporations that control our entire meat industry. And what that means is that the small family farmer really doesn't exist anymore. These farmers have been forced to enter into contracts with these huge meat companies just so that they can compete. And the way that these contracts are structured is through what's called vertical integration. And in a nutshell, what that means is that the farmers bear all of the risk and reap almost none of the reward because the costs are all externalized by these meat companies who ensure that it's the farmers, it's the neighboring communities, it's the animals, and it's the consumers who are really bearing the cost of cheap, quick, easily accessible meat. Um, 
So because of this, uh, we recently released at Mercy for Animals, uh, I believe late last year, a report about the economic state of American farmers. And some of our findings through that report were really remarkable. And one that stood out for me is that the majority of American farmers, this is not how they are earning their money. It's not lucrative. They all have other jobs outside of farming to support the farm because what's happening is they'll be raising chickens or pigs or whatever animal it is and they're responsible for doing things like upgrading their farms to ensure that they're still going to receive a flock and be able to keep farming. Um, They don't know what kind of feed they're going to receive from the company which oversees how these animals are bred and how these animals are fed and when they arrive and when they're taken to slaughter. So as a result, it's just not a predictable source of income. And truly, these farmers are in debt and they're horribly exploited by these meat companies. So as a result, Mercy for Animals takes the approach that if we're going to make systemic change to factory farming and ensure that not only we're protecting animals, but we're also protecting farmers and neighboring communities and consumers, we have to work together. We have to move past the nuance of why we all recognize that this system is broken and instead focus on it is broken. We agree on that. And this is how we're going to fix it. Yes. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, when like, I'll just take my, myself for instance, um, you know, when we think about, um, the, the farm, right. Um, we don't think that it, uh, and we think that you're just like a, a, a full-time farmer, but the way that you can now put it is like farming has become kind of a, a, a sidekick <laughs> for people because it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't, uh, keep that, uh, well, in their case, that uh, maybe food on the table and a bit, uh, I guess, platter fun, not intended, um, and, uh, and keep, uh, keep the lights on because of the fact that there's so much upkeep. Um, just to um, to be a farmer, and so you know that. And when people started thinking about that, um, from I guess getting uh, more personalized sense, um, at first people were this. I I would think that they would be like, oh, okay, well, you know, you know, um, uh, that sounds horrible for the farmer, but it's not affecting me. But it really is affecting uh, people. One of the things that people have to start thinking about is that if uh, the the time and effort and the um, you know dedication is not being put into the uh, food and the items that we are all consuming, which then of course helps us as humans grow and thrive and things like that. Then that is that this should be like you know maybe number one top concern for everyone across the world because as I mentioned before. Without food, we don't even exist, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, can you? Well, the, the only thing that I think that, um, and it's only because it was uh, popularized, I, I believe, like last year, and maybe a little bit at the end of 2020, um, that people think about is that they think about like, um, you know, uh, the, um, the, they've seen some of the photos about like the on the chicken farms of how everybody how the chickens are uh, lined up 
and but they don't really understand, I guess, like, you know, how is this really affecting, um, you know, the, the, the people, the chickens and everything like that? Yeah, so I think what you've touched on is um, really why Mercy for Animals is known for, perhaps first and foremost, doing undercover investigations of factory farms and slaughterhouses to truly show the conditions that these animals, these farmers, these workers are existing in, in order to uh, support the meat industry's ever-growing production of animal food products. Um, so yeah, let's talk about what we call broilers. Broilers are meat chickens. Uh, these chickens are raised in what are called chicken houses. Um, they, if you have driven anywhere in the Southeast of the U S in particular, you have likely seen these, they are very large, um, houses really about the size of, of a football field. And these chickens live indoors, uh, mostly in the dark, uh, if not entirely in the dark, for their entire short lives. Their lives are so short because these chickens have been bred to grow extremely quickly in a very short period of time. So whereas even 20, 30 years ago, uh, a chicken would not be ready for slaughter for a number of months, now some of these breeds are bred to be large enough for slaughter in just a mere 60 days. So the chicks are dropped off um, and they live inside this shed where they hardly have any room to move around. Um, They're living amidst their own filth, their own feces, Uh, Anyone who has visited a broiler chicken farm will tell you that the smell is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, It's an ammonia smell. Um, And these chickens grow so quickly that very soon they can't support their own weight because their legs are not strong enough for them to hold themselves up. So they tip over, they tip forward because their their chicken breasts become so heavy and they tip over. Uh, Most recently, we documented these uh, on a farm that supplies Costco, and we were really calling out, how is it possible that Costco is selling rotisserie chickens for just $5? And the footage that we were able to to show the world, uh, which was eventually broken by the New York Times, um, was really alarming to a lot of a lot of consumers, and it did allow us to get Costco to come to the table and commit to some higher welfare standards. Um, so many of these chickens do not even make it to slaughter because they become so ill that. Um, they either die or uh, the farmer has to kill them because before going to slaughter because they are suffering. But if they do make it to slaughter, um, they're picked up by a truck and thrown into cages um, where they can't stand up or turn around. They're packed in so tightly and they're brought to a slaughterhouse. Um, in the United States, we do have a law that is supposed to um create kind of the misnomer of humane slaughter, Uh, but that does not apply to birds. So the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, as it's called, does not cover poultry. It only covers uh, what's defined as livestock, so cows and pigs, et cetera. So what we have 
for um, the majority of chicken slaughter in the U.S. is called live shackle slaughter. Uh, these animals are hung upside down uh, on a slaughter line uh, that moves extremely quickly, um, approximately um, 1,400 birds per minute uh, is what we're dealing with. Um, and then they are they are slaughtered and then they go into scalding hot water. But because they're moving so quickly, very often they miss, um, they miss the part where they're supposed to be slaughtered and they end up in this scalding water still alive and are essentially boiled alive. Um, so as you can imagine for anyone, this is horrific. And our undercover investigations really shine a light on this um, and show how devastating this is for the animals. But I do want to emphasize that this is really devastating for slaughterhouse workers as well, who are forced to stand shoulder to shoulder and make the same cut or the same movement for eight hour days with only two 15 minute breaks and a short break for lunch. Um, during COVID, we saw that slaughterhouse workers were suffering rates of COVID and deaths due to COVID even higher than incarcerated people throughout the United States. Uh, and they were forced to work. They were forced to work because the federal government took the position that it was necessary for our country to keep producing meat, um, even to a surplus in many cases. Uh, so really this, um, this industry is exploiting everyone in the system and not least of all as the consumer. So it's no secret that uh, bird flu right now uh, is a huge problem. There's an, an outbreak going on throughout the United States right now. And that is rampant because we are factory farming. We're having animals be so close together that these um, avian flus are so contagious that they're moving through these flocks and these birds so quickly. And these many of these diseases are zoonotic, meaning that they could be passed on to humans. And with us still having COVID and, and having just kind of come out of the worst of this pandemic, um, this is a risk to consumers as well. And the way that we farm is really dangerous for human health. Wow. Um, I feel... Uh, it's disturbing. And <laughs> what can I say? Um, no. All I can say now is, should we all become vegan? <laughs> you know, I'm vegan, no. which of, of course I'm sure doesn't surprise you or doesn't support any or doesn't surprise any listeners. Um, and of course, in my ideal world, everyone would not only go vegan, but would recognize that there are so many delicious plant-based options which are becoming more affordable and more accessible every day. But really, I think it's important that we meet people where they are. And even if you are just reducing some of your animal food consumption, any reduction is a good reduction. So that could look like cutting out one area of food or not eating any meat products or animal products one day a week or not eating any animal products until a certain time of day, maybe only eat them at dinner. And having that gradual reduction and recognizing that you don't have to go vegan overnight. Um, for myself personally, I was vegetarian, meaning that I was still consuming dairy and eggs um, for over a decade before I went entirely vegan. And even then, uh, it was a gradual process with eggs being the last thing that I gave up. So 
I think that one narrative that the meat industry has helped to spin is that uh, vegans are radical and we're all or nothing and black and white when it comes to this issue. And I would really challenge that. Uh, I think that knowing that someone is reducing in any way is a tremendous benefit to our climate, to animals, to workers, to this entire system that we really need to break down and reconstruct. Yes. And so, you know, in a, in a I guess if we go, I'm going to like turn the dial of back down because it's always interesting, I think, to figure out how did, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Um, did we get here under um, because we, we really do need this, uh, you know, increased amount of meat or is it just that we became greedy, I guess, um, uh, you know, did, did, do we need this amount of meat that we, that we have been producing? So the sh- I'll answer your kind of second question first, uh, which is we, have an incredible amount of food waste, especially when it comes to meat and animal products. Um, that is really, again, that narrative that uh, big ag and the meat industry has spun is that we need more and more meat. Um, I think a really good example of that is uh, in the beginning of COVID, when the meat industry recognized that their slaughterhouse workers were dying at alarming rates. And as a result, they were having trouble keeping uh, the doors open and having enough staff to continue slaughtering animals. Um, One of those companies took out a massive full page ad in the New York Times, as well as other newspapers throughout the country, threatening a meat shortage. And they did that to get the administration to respond by invoking um, a very rarely used law that uh, essentially required slaughterhouse doors to stay open. And at the time, this seemed absolutely incredible. But what's incredible now is the pork industry recently uh, released their figures for how much pork was produced during that time period And it's significantly more than the year before. So in other words, um, they were, it was the boy who cried wolf. They were saying that there was going to be a shortage when really they were overproducing as per usual. So uh, again, that narrative is just not based in fact. It's not based in reality. Uh, We do have a surplus of meat in this country and we're producing more and more every year. That's not to say that we're not also consuming more, unfortunately, uh, but the food waste uh, does show otherwise. To answer your question as to how we got here, um, really about 30 to 40 years ago, um, the then Secretary of the USDA said, uh, get big or get out, which became and still is a very famous quote as to how factory farming started getting out of control. Um, This corporate consolidation just started spiraling out of control. And that's really when the small the small family farmer uh, became a thing of the past. At this point, uh, the animal food products um, in our grocery stores, the meat, the dairy, the eggs, 99% of that is coming from CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations, aka factory farms. Um, 
that that applies even when you're talking about uh, grocery stores seen as high standards like Whole Foods or Sprouts. Um, we just are no longer farming food in any way aside from factory farming, large scale. Uh, this was a, a conscious decision by the U.S. and the USDA to go in this direction, and this is this is how we've ended up where we are. And I think what's really scary is that other countries, uh, especially China, are looking at this model of farming and they're replicating it. Um, perhaps some listeners have seen or read about uh, the hog farms in China that are multi-story. So it's football field upon football field of skyscrapers of pigs. Um, and they have taken our U.S. factory farm model and are leveling it up, which is truly terrifying um, and really humbling to think, uh, for me at least personally, that our work in the U.S., while hugely important, we're slaughtering 10 billion animals per year here in the United States, 9 billion of them chicken. Um, more than half of all farmed animals, including fish, are in China and India and more than 10% are in Southeast Asia. And that's why Mercy for Animals is expanding into these areas and, and really looking at this on a global scale. Yes, uh, you know, I just, uh, I keep getting a bunch of visuals in my head as you're describing this, and I feel like, um, you know, I, I know there are animals, but it's almost like we're putting animals in concentration camps. <laughs> Um, that's mm -hmm. what I keep, you know, that's what I keep uh, uh, kind of visualizing mm -hmm. um, uh, for animals. And so it just, you know, uh, it's horrifying when I think about this. Um, you know, uh, one of the things, though, you know, uh, that we're not thinking of and that we all have to think kind of even though it is overwhelming um, because, you know, we'll, uh, we are just, you know, little humans but we are on this uh you know big planet and all these things that you're doing are affecting the environment to um some extent and one of the biggest things that uh that gets brought up or at least the articles that i read and the most uh, popular uh, of course um the thing that uh was popping up a lot in the news was uh had to do with uh cows and how cows were adding to the pollution of uh, rivers and, um, and then, uh, you know, how all of that was uh, um, contributing, of course, um, down the scale to then we have, you know, uh, it's like pollution in our water that leads to, you know, other uh, illnesses and things um, that would uh, start to affect us. But the question that I always ask would be how of all of these animals that we have um, you know, bread or quickly um, produced, but what do we, like, how can we uh, turn this around? Like, what do we do with the cows if we start to um, limit how much, um, you know, impact or what, which, I guess, how can we start to um, uh, stop this? So this isn't going to be a solution that happens overnight. Um, as you acknowledged, uh, we haven't really even begun to touch on the climate impacts in this conversation, but globally, the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions from animal ag are higher than the direct emissions of all trains, planes, and cars in the entire transport sector. And that's a fact that 
I think many folks don't realize is how significant of a CO2E emitter our factory farming industry is. Um, so with the gravity of, of this system, um, not just the greenhouse gas emissions, but also the incredible number of animals and how lucrative, unfortunately, this system is, this isn't going to be an overnight fix. And at Mercy for Animals, we believe that it's also not going to be one intervention that makes the systemic change. Our theory of change is that if we push on these various different levers, whether it's getting corporations to commit to higher animal welfare standards or having more plant-based options or getting government officials to pass laws or getting farmers to change the narrative in rural communities about how to make a living. Um, all of these interventions are worthy. And once we reach that tipping point, from all of them working together, then we can create and construct this new system. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our transformation project, which I think does really hit on kind of this breaking down of the system and creating something new. Those chicken houses that I described earlier, um, as you can imagine, are very expensive to heat and cool and light and really maintain. And when one of the biggest reasons why these farmers, despite many of them wanting to get out of their contracts, uh, one of the reasons that they stay is because they don't know what they would do with this infrastructure, do with this chicken house, as it may be, if they were to stop farming. And that's where our transformation project comes in. We are partnering with farmers who have stopped farming animals or are in the process of stopping farming animals to use those chicken houses to grow something else. Um, we have farmers who are growing hemp and then drying it in those chicken houses. We have farmers who are growing mushrooms. It turns out these chicken houses, and we have one hog uh, facility, former hog facility as well. Um, it turns out they're the, the perfect place to grow uh, fungi or mushrooms, specialty mushrooms. Uh, we have folks uh, that are farmers that are growing um, microgreens. Um, and we even have a farmer who has come full circle and converted one of those houses into an, an animal shelter for dogs uh, who are homeless. Uh, in, in their community. So I really think that in order to solve this problem, we have to be thinking outside of the box and creatively like this. Uh, and like I said, I think at the beginning of this, we also have to set aside our differences and the nuance of why we might disagree and recognize that we can solve this together if we focus on what we have in common, which is that we want to construct a more just food system. Yes, and um, I guess uh, I guess if I I'm going to just uh, assume, but you can tell me if you disagree. I guess uh, from your perspective, you would say that it's really about um, uh, I guess education for across the board uh, for everyone, and and kind of uh, uh, I guess relearning. Yeah, I think so. I think education, public awareness. Um, there's a reason why most people don't realize what uh, 
where their food comes from or what the inside of a chicken house looks like or smells like. Uh, the industry, the factory farming, big ag industry has intentionally made it uh, very difficult to permeate. And I think that it behooves those of us who do understand and those of us doing this work to raise the public awareness so that consumers can make good choices and uh, make change with, with their wallet, so to speak. Um, and then finally, I think uh, <clears throat> it comes down to open-mindedness and inclusivity. Uh, and that's really recognizing that um, kind of the, the same vein that we were speaking earlier about reducing animal food consumption and, and not just assuming that everyone can or will go vegan overnight. Um, we can be mission aligned with someone, meaning that they also want to end factory farming, but they're coming at it from a different perspective and accepting that we have strength in numbers and in order to grow those numbers and that people power, uh, we have to accept one another and uh, move past our differences. So I guess if you were going to, I know that you, are, you personally are not a farmer, um, but, but if, if we were going to, uh, I guess, put together kind of an idealized, um, uh, you know, how a farm should operate and let's say, you know, um, ideally, of course, we'd love everybody to uh, uh, go on the vegan route if they, if they were willing to, but if not, I guess, how should a farm um you know, operate in the future when it comes to animal welfare? Yeah. So really I would point to a piece of legislation that's already out there that would make enormous change uh, in our factory farming and our agricultural industry as a whole. And that is Senator Cory Booker's Farm System Reform Act, which was first introduced a couple years ago now. And first and foremost, what that would do is it would create a moratorium on future, um, enormous animal feeding operations or factory farms. And I think that's really number one is farms need to stop being so huge because the only way that animal ag can be that enormous is if you are confining animals in an extremely cruel manner. And we find ourselves having to undo much of that by trying to pass laws that get these animals out of cages and crates. And if we would simply put a moratorium on creating any more of these factory farms, that would go a long way. Um, I would also say that there is a huge demand for plant-based food products right now, um, particularly as there becomes more competition in that market with all of the food innovation and food tech that's coming out. Ingredients are going to be needed to make these products. So although there is not really a movement of new farmers right now, um, we work with farmers and we're constantly hearing that the future generations just don't want to inherit the farm. But if there are folks out there who, who want to get into farming, farm plants, um, there's such a, a mushroom trend right now, for example. That's why many of our transformation farmers are choosing to farm mushrooms in their former chicken houses. Um, there's, there's a demand for plants right now, whether that's uh, specialty crops for human consumption or ingredients for making these delicious plant-based food products. Hmm. That's sad. Yeah, I, I have noticed just in uh, 
um, the grocery store. So I've been, you know, at Whole Foods and out here in and then California, mm-hmm. uh, we have another markets, uh, sprouts and things like that. So I have uh, noticed there's is a big push uh, for vegan food mm-hmm. and, uh, and well, I'm in California, so there's always a big push for vegan food. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, one of the things, um, and because you are a global organization, I wanted to kind of discuss a little bit and make this uh, have a global touch, is that uh, what what part of the world do you think that animals are are most at risk currently? I would have to say China. Um, this is where over half of animals are being farmed. Um, and that number is, is on the rise. Um, as I spoke about earlier, this factory farming model that uh, really seems as though China learned from us here in the U.S. Uh, is being taken uh, to, to a higher level. So particularly when it comes to farmed animals, um, I would have to say China. Um, and of course, the environmental impacts of that are is harming wildlife. Um, we can see examples of this just in habitat degradation of wildlife all over the world. Uh, just the warming of the planet that is taking place in large part uh, because of the agricultural sector. Yes. Um, you know, uh, when I started thinking about, um, you know, uh, animals and how, you know, um, I, I watched some of the videos, and I suggest everybody should watch one of the videos on um, and mercy for animals because they were interesting. Um, that touched on uh, how that the uh, environment was getting uh, impacted, not just uh, you know for the animals themselves, but how that and uh, usually most farms are in uh, rural areas, um, and so these communities that tend to be uh, smaller, and because as we mentioned before. Um, a lot of the farmers have to have, you know, multiple jobs um, because of the economics uh, are just not uh, panning out as they used to for farmers. And so uh, that that in, uh, uh, in the video that I watched uh, is uh, affecting um, these uh, communities. And one of the biggest things that uh, people are not necessarily uh, thinking about um, is that uh, how, you know, it has this ripple effect on, you know, eco- uh, the economy, not only for farmers, but those people in the town. And then, you know, uh, and because of the uh, pollutants and that people are, you know, either getting them by air or um, through water. And so then it leads to illnesses. And then, of course, you know, we just went through this whole crazy COVID. And depending on uh, where you are in the world, you still may be um, dealing with COVID, and so um, being that that is you know uh, transmitted by air, it just uh, continues um, the problem. So, I would say <laughs> worrying about animals is number one <laughs> um, because it, it it really does uh, affect us uh, a lot um, deeper than um, we we think on the surface. Uh, I I definitely until I started uh, diving in wasn't thinking. Um, into it, it that deeply until I was like, oh, okay, wait, just a minute here. It really does uh, dive uh, really deep. That comes literally not only to our plate but to our bodies as well. Um, and so I wanted to uh, 
um, kind of uh, wrap it up a little bit um, about talking about two more things. Um, so I wanted to uh, talk about um, the EADS Act a little bit and um, and how that is that, uh, you know, affecting or you would say if it, uh, if you feel that it really is protecting and low uh, low income households, if it's not, um, or I guess I would just like to get your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. So the EATS Act, uh, that stands for Exposing Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. It was introduced last Congress. Um, it has not been introduced again this Congress, which we at Mercy for Animals are glad that it was not. Um, this bill would essentially undermine state farmed animal protection laws by restricting states' ability to create higher welfare standards for farmed animals. So I'll use um, Proposition 12, as we refer to it here in California. Uh, I'm in California as well. Um, I'll use that as an example, as it was really the first, and at its time, it was a historic law, that ballot initiative, and then law that was passed here. And it essentially uh, made it so that pigs, veal calves, and egg-laying hens had to have more space and get out of extreme confinement. So pigs uh, currently housed in gestation crates where they can't even turn around for the duration of their pregnancies uh, would be given enough room to stand up and turn around and be housed in group housing. Uh, Egg-laying hens would be given enough space to spread their wings and dust bathe, and veal calves as well would be given enough space to stand up and turn around. So it sounds pretty basic, right? Like basic protections. And uh, that was passed overwhelmingly uh, by California voters in 2018. And almost immediately, the big meat industry, that's the American Farm Bureau Federation and the National Pork Producers Council began fighting this because they see that it is more lucrative for them and, and the dollar is driven by this extreme confinement. And um, that they challenged uh, the ballot initiative and that case has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. It was argued in October and we are expecting a decision really any day now. Um, so the EATS Act is another attempt uh, by big ag lobbyists in the meat industry to undermine those laws and make it so that uh, they would be preempted at the federal level and extreme confi confinement would be allowed to move forward. Um, so we are expecting the EATS Act to come back probably in the farm bill process. The farm bill is going is in a reauthorization year right now in 2023. It comes up every five years. And we do expect there to be language in there um, at, at some point in that process. And we're prepared to oppose it uh, as we did last Congress and, and hope that we're able to defeat it once again. Yes, it's that you know, um, it's after you know after the beginning of our discussion and you know getting the visualization, of, you know, um, just hundreds and hundreds of birds just you know being hung upside down, scalding just scalding hot water, animals being confined, stacked on each other. Um, it's uh, you know, it's sad to think that everyone um, or there's a good portion of people that are just always thinking of of the uh, money instead of uh, being humane. <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it's just, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's making my uh, stomach turn a little bit when I think about oh it. <laughs> um, so I guess in, in, in closing, um, what would you say uh, that everyday, how can everyday people help Mercy for Animals or make an impact in, the, in a positive direction um, to change the situation? Yeah, so you probably won't be surprised to hear my, my first answer, which is uh, to reduce the amount of animal food products that you're consuming. Uh, it really does make a difference how your food choices, uh, what you choose to spend your money on, um, and you can vote with your wallet, so to speak, uh, by shifting some of your eating towards plant-based options. Um, so that would be the first on an individual level. And the second would be to use your voice to allow your elected officials and the corporations that uh, you support by buying their products to hear from you. Um, so whether that's contacting your state representative, your local representative, your member of Congress, and letting them know that farmed animal protection matters to you, that you think farmed animals should be respected and protected, um, whether that's uh, seeking incremental change, like asking corporations to have higher animal welfare standards, getting their animals out of cages and crates. Um, I think that if anything, we've learned over the past few years, grassroots advocacy and collective action really does work. Uh, when you look at movements like other social justice movements, that is like Black Lives Matter, uh, the Me Too movement, systemic change has come about from folks coming together and raising their voices. And we can do the same thing for farmed animals. Uh, we just have to we just have to be heard um, and uh, make sure that these decision makers and policymakers are held accountable to what they campaign on and to vote the ones who aren't aligned with us out of office. Thank you, AJ, for your time and insight. If you'd like to learn more about AJ, you can go to mercyforanimals.org. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.org to start your project of change today. We'd like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter, Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.org slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month, plus get a 10% discount on any project you start on projectgood.org. Guess what, everybody? It's conference time. We are launching a conference called the Changemaker Conference. Register now to attend our virtual conference for only $79. Once you register, you get the conference and you also get to be a lifetime member of our Changemaker community. Go to www.changemakerconference.com to register today. To our listeners, thanks for listening to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. Music